1: Hey, y'all! Daniel here to let you all know that The Cannonball is brought to you by OnlineGreatBooks.com this month. Uh, OnlineGreatBooks.com is a web-based uh, self-education curriculum where you will read the great books of the Western tradition. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely terrific because not only will you, be, uh, will you be engaging with these great and powerful and important texts from throughout history, but also it is designed to teach you how to become a better reader by habit, a better reader and a better thinker. Uh, you will also be in uh, – as as part of this program, you will be involved in class discussions with other people who are reading the same books as you, um, all led in a Socratic method by uh, a, a learned interlocutor, um, actually uh, one of whom I've had the pleasure of uh, engaging in just such a conversation with. It was absolutely terrific. Uh, so uh, uh, enrollment is open now. Just go to Online Great Books. You're going to want to enter a promo code and our promo code here is c a n that's promo code c a n so go to onlineGreatbooks.com, use promo code c a n to get 25 percent off your first three months and to let them know that the cannonball sent you and to help support our show uh so without any further ado let's get on with uh don quixote we finally got to don quixote i'm excited are you excited let's hit it
0: Welcome to the Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western Canon. This is Claude Meyer and Gooser, and with me is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing, man?
1: Uh, hey, pretty good, um, considering. Uh, <laughs> as uh, anyone – I guess any any hardcore uh, canon heads out there will realize this episode is coming out a uh, – we're, we're a little delayed. We're out uh, just, just a little bit, um, and I've been uh, – my, my house has been uh, – suffering through some kind of curse or uh, some kind of ancient (laughs) prophecy is being fulfilled. I don't know, but it's been basically plague summer 2k 18 out here (laughs) and we're on like week three of at least one person in my family being sick, uh, which I think we're finally out. I think we're finally rounding out of it all, but I was, uh, I I caught the tail end of it uh, myself. So if I, if I sound a little hoarse, if I have to turn away and, and, and cough distantly, Um, then that's, that's what that's about. But, uh, but yeah, man, I'm Claude, I just want to say, I I appreciate so much that you're, that you're as well versed in this work as I am. because (laughs) I I didn't really get to spend as much thoughtful time with the text as I, as I usually do. And as I, as I prefer to, so I'm going to be going off of a lot of my recollections of the last time that we read it. Um, and, uh, and honestly, you're, uh, you're extremely, um, valuable synopsis (laughs) so
0: what you're saying is we're screwed
1: okay um (laughs) excuse me
0: (coughs) i i see that the 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 enchanter that Mm -hmm. is trying to subvert all of my activities has um cursed you with a, a delirious cough that will um pop up intermittently intermittently so. but
1: we but you know what um his attempt to derail our noble pursuit is uh, <laughs> is for naught for we are both noble paladins and we shall never be never be uh thwarted in our quest um and uh yeah and i'm really looking forward to it i, I think I, I just wanted i guess to apologize to the listeners like i really like you know, it's been a this big roll up to Don Quixote. Like we had like, you know, two special episodes of like introductory and we're talking about it. We're all so excited. And then, of course, we drop off the radar for a few weeks um, and then we come back and I'm just coughing my lungs up and uh, and haven't done all the reading that I should have done. Well, but what could you be know. more
0: quixotic than uh, setting out with all the best intentions and failing miserably?
1: I love it. Let's, I mean hey, let's hop on in there man okay, I,
0: I, I love this book. I, I really really love this book. even the the second book I've been talking to a friend of mine um, who's like, you know I, I, I love the first book because it's so light and fun. It's the second book that gets really dark and kind of bums me out but I, I love them both. I, I, I really love Don Quixote. Uh, and I've been trying to think about what it is that that draws me into it so much. Um, it's just fun. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's – it's I, I was talking about this with uh, Chris Ludovici, that it doesn't feel like an 800-page book or a 1,000-page book. It it just breezes along.
1: It really does. Yeah, you're right.
0: And I, I was talking to a, a, another friend of mine who's read it, you know, many moons ago. But we were, I don't know, on our fourth or fifth <laughs> beers. And he was saying, you know, the thing I remember about Don Quixote is it just jumps right in. There's – little to no preamble i mean there's the introductory material and the kind of uh dialogic jokes that cervantes is making with the the introduction the kind of meta narrative that that he's establishing but in terms of the story itself it just jumps right in
1: it really does like quite literally like the within the first page you know the the, the soon-to-be Don Quixote has, has decided, like, oh, I, am, I shall be a knight-errant. Yeah. I, I mean, I it's really, yeah, it just goes off at a clip.
0: <laughs> I think with a lot of these works, there's this expectation that there's a kind of ramble into it. And it in the third page, Don Quixote's out of the house. You know it it's literally that fast so yeah. I, I figured what we could do is uh, begin with kind of the Cliffs notes summary to to walk anyone who's unfamiliar with the book through the book and then dive into some of the the other kinds of I guess analytical things that I'm mm-hmm. I'm really kind of ripping to talk about yeah right. yeah. So, uh, oh, and if anybody's curious, we are using the Grossman translation. Right? Yeah, yeah, I right? think.
1: With um, two thousand three was the publication yeah, date for that one. Yeah, I believe yeah. so.
0: But it re- it really is uh, a, a solid translation. Uh, if I you mean, it's to it's,
1: own, it's yeah. beautiful. It's it's uh, it's incredibly fluid, and there and there are moments, of course, like uh, I, I think, especially with a book like Don Quixote, translation matters a lot because yeah. Cervantes yeah. himself was playing with the language. So much himself, like you, you know, you got to be a good translator to know how to translate a Castilian writing how a Basque mispronounces Castilian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: you know, right? Okay, so here is the cliff's note summary in case you've never read it. And Don Quixote is famously one of those books that is talked about and never actually read. So here we go. Um, it starts off with a bang. Don Quixote adopts his identity and hits the road. And as soon as he's out there, he has this kind of self overhearing or self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's part of the metatheatrical joke but or not metatheatrical meta narratorial joke that he is expecting someone to write him down uh, first, or write down his adventures. First, um, he's framing his own identity in terms of Amadis of Gaul, uh, another one of these knights errant that he's read too much about. Uh, and he's thinking um, about the day when someone. Who, when someone will actually write down his adventures. I mean, it's in chapter two. He has this, I I hope I don't get sued for this, but I, I have to read this. Uh, he's walking, he's on his horse, Rosinante, uh, who's this, you know, shriveled old nag, and he's riding out, just kind of strolling along, and he has this sort of monologue or i guess it's a soliloquy because he's talking to himself he says who can doubt that in times to come when the true history of famous deeds comes to light of uh, of my famous deeds comes to light the wise man who compiles them when he begins to account my first Sally so early in the day will write in this manner no sooner had rubicon apollo spread over the face of the wide and spacious earth the golden strands of his beauteous hair no sooner had diminutive and bright-hued birds with dulcet tongues greeted in sweet mellifluous harmony the advent of rosy dawn who forsaking the soft couch of her zealous consort, revealed herself to mortals through the doors and balconies of the Manchegan Horizon. Then the famous knight, Don Quixote of La Mancha, abandoning the downy bed of idleness, mounted his famous steed, Rocinante, and commenced to ride through the ancient and illustrious countryside of Montiel. Um, He's immediately thinking of himself as a literary character. So he's kind of written himself into his own story. And he's imagining that someone will narrate him. So it's it's part of that meta narrative structure that it just bleeds together. It's very difficult to disentangle. But that's that's Don Quixote's weird self-consciousness. So I think that's sort of like the the oddity of him from the from the very beginning. Uh, oddity in a good way. It's it's sort of what differentiates him from a lot of these other uh, prose characters that you find in the time. All right, So, <coughs> he goes to the first inn. There's a running joke that he keeps mistaking inns for castles. Uh, it's a running joke, but it really only happens twice. Uh, every inn he comes to, he thinks is a castle, but he only comes to two inns. Right, yeah. So, the first inn he goes into, he mistakes it for a castle. He sees a bunch of prostitutes around the door, thinks that they're uh, uh, fantastic ladies. Um, he realizes that he hasn't been knighted yet and starts complaining about this to the innkeeper. The innkeeper is a kind of a, a, a Picaro uh, that's evidenced by the fact that he says he's written his own history at some point. Uh, Picaros were, I guess we talked about this last time, but one of the mm-hmm. signifying factors of uh, Picaros was that they were known for writing their histories, or that most uh, Picaresques claimed to be the real history of some rogue, more or less. Right, right. So the innkeeper uh, is already involved in this kind of self... Uh, self-writing situation. He's also written himself as he envisions himself. Okay, but anyway, the innkeeper uh, recognizes the the sort of chivalric background that Don Quixote is drawing from and plays along with him. In the night, uh, Don Quixote keeps watch over his armor, uh, which he's set by the, the trough where the mules can get their water. A mule driver comes up, sees the armor, it's in the way, moves it, Don Quixote brains him with his lance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this gets him into some trouble because the innkeeper realizes he's causing a ruckus, and this could bring down the cops, and this could be like a whole situation. So he decides to get Don Quixote out of there as fast as possible. The innkeeper knights Don Quixote, uh, sends him on his way, and Don Quixote feels good about having you know been finally knighted uh, by the the aristocrat or the aristocratic lord that he feels is most appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, in the next chapter, Don Quixote, quote, unquote, rescues a kid who hasn't been paid. Uh, The kid is being flogged by his master. And Don Quixote attempts to set him free. The master says, okay, sure, whatever, knight errant, I will set him free. And then, um, you know, I'll, I'll pay him everything that I owe him and more. Don Quixote <laughs> leaves, and the master takes the boy back to be flogged even more. Yeah. Now, uh, this is a famous case of... Uh, if anybody out there has read Nabokov's critique of Don Quixote, uh, Nabokov did this kind of pedantic... Um, I guess chart of Don Quixote's wins losses and draws huh, and yeah. this one he counts a loss but uh, Echeverria the scholar that we were sort of drawing from last time uh, points out that later in the book Don Quixote comes across this kid again and the kid says that he's going to Seville or, or to Sevilla and the, the significant factor of that is Sevilla was known as the the sort of – it was a port city and it was known as the the <laughs> haunt of all the Picaros. Mm-hmm. So maybe the kid really <laughs> deserved his flogging is the, the suggestion.
1: Right. <laughs> and the that's the, that and like that's, that's kind of hinted at in the uh, – or I guess hinted at. I, I, I think that's that's kind of – that comes up in the text. Um in that, you know, w- you know, we, the reader know that Don Quixote is always wrongheaded, right? Yeah. So here he is trying to help who he assumes to be an innocent being, uh, you know, un- you know, unjustly punished by some ogre or what have you. Well, you know, if Don Quixote is always, you know, off his noodle, then, you know, just like the incubator was not a on, just like the local uh you know ladies of the evening were not in fact ladies in waiting i think you're onto something <laughs> this yeah. is maybe this is maybe not an innocent uh, victim he probably he probably got into some uh some uh, stuff that while i don't i do not support capital punishment or capital corporal punishment um he, he may have had it coming in a sense
0: yeah. So okay, the next thing is uh, Don Quixote tries to get a bunch of merchants and mule drivers to declare the beauty of Dulcinea, uh, even though they haven't seen her. And the the joke is, well, how can we declare her beauty if we haven't seen her? And Don Quixote says, her beauty is so magnificent, you don't have to see her.
1: And I guess you we should just take it on faith. <laughs> yeah, and I guess we should mention. I don't know if I, I, I'm sorry if, if you mentioned before, but Dulcinea is the. Um, not quite imaginary, I guess, Uh, noble lady that Don Quixote has dedicated his knight-errancy to.
0: Thank you. That's something I sort of uh, bypassed. Uh, In the very beginning, (laughs) Don Quixote, in order to... In order to be the knight errant that he wants to be, he knows he has to have a lady love who he's not good enough for, who continually rejects him. So he's looking about for one and picks out this uh, peasant woman who's sort of tilling the field, or or I guess throwing hay, and says, she will be my, my ideal and dubs her Dulcinea del Toboso. And everything he does, he does for Dulcinea. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the weirdness of that. I, I have a sort of theory about that that I want to run past you later on. Yeah. But, but anyway, um, he's developed this ideal woman that he does everything for. And so he, he asks these mule drivers and merchants to proclaim, like to swear essentially their, their, um, that they acknowledge the beauty of Dulcinea, they have to swear it without having seen her. So they have to make this religious oath. They decide they can't do that, and he pesters them to the point that they beat him up. And uh, that's when he's found by um, a local farmer, like a farmer who's from his own village, and so the farmer picks him up, waits till nightfall so he won't be too embarrassed, and takes him back to his niece and housekeeper so that they can look after him. And he takes to bed to recover, and that's when uh, the local priest and the local barber have this kind of mock auto-defe fé of all of don quixote's books they go yeah yeah (laughs) one by one through all his books of chivalry and basically make this arbitrary distinction okay which one do we keep which one do we throw on sometimes there are some that the priest kind of kind of sort of likes and he keeps them sometimes there's some that he's like okay this is trash let's toss it on all right they wall up the library itself, so Don Quixote can't find it. And they work with his housekeeper and his his niece to say, okay, uh, it was an enchanter. An enchanter came in, walled up your library, burned all your books, so you don't get them anymore, and you just have to live with that. Yeah. And the thing about Don Quixote's madness, or supposed madness, is – Well, that makes total sense to him. Of course an enchanter is out to get him, and of course an enchanter will steal all his books. So, you know, it's just in the way of things. Um, He more or less accepts that. But a second... Uh, Sally out begins when he starts talking to his neighbor, Sancho Panza, uh, a fat peasant who works for him and sort of lives a couple houses over. Uh, He convinces Sancho Panza that he really is a knight errant, and if Panza goes along with him, then all kinds of riches will be at his disposal. In particular, uh, he promises Sancho an insula, which is this old-fashioned term for an island for him to govern, and Sancho doesn't even really know what the term means, but he just knows that he'll be a governor, so he's going along with it. Yeah. Okay, It's when Don Quixote and Sancho uh, set out together for the first time that we get the most famous episode in the whole novel, the episode of the windmills. It comes really early, it's over really quick, and if you're going into Don Quixote thinking he's going to be quote-unquote tilting at windmills throughout the whole thing, you'll be sorely disappointed.
1: It you is! Say- yeah and that's something that when i when i first read it you know when our our first iteration of this uh, project you know a couple of years ago um that was really surprising to me because i and and it makes me wonder i i would now be i would now be interested in the kind of uh the history of that scene becoming a synecdoche for the entire work I, Mm -hmm. i i would wonder like was you know has that always been the most famous scene, or is that was that sort of selected sometime later, or what? It's 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 interesting to me that that's always like that's the that's the one Don Quixote thing everyone knows. And yeah. you're right, like it's it's over in a page. I mean, yeah. it's it's barely anything.
0: Yeah. So he thinks a bunch of windmills are giants charges at him, gets knocked off his horse, gets back on, and just tells Sancho, "Well, you know what? It's that Enchanter who's after me." It's
1: <laughs> <gotta be. laughs> that Enchanter just he transforms them into windmills right at the last second.
0: Well, yeah, yeah and that's that's kind of what's what's Great about Don Quixote is that anything that goes wrong. Well, it was an enchanter,
1: you know. It's I think, and, and uh, yeah. So uh, so here we have uh, Miguel de Cervantes uh, prefiguring one of my favorite jokes from The Simpsons by about four centuries. When there was uh, there was an episode where Lucy Lawless, television's Zena, was on uh, on the program as uh, attending some kind of like nerd con panel or whatever, and uh, and the comic book guy you know asked her about like some you know unlikely thing happening in the show. Uh, thinking it's like a continuity error uh, or pointing out a continuity error. And so she says, oh, yeah, well, uh, whenever you see anything like that, a wizard did it.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <that's... laughs> and so, and so, yeah, so it's, you know.
0: Well, speaking of continuity errors, uh, <laughs> immediately after the, the, the fight with the windmill, he meets another caravan, and he believes that this woman who's traveling with them is a princess who needs to be rescued. Uh, she's traveling with this, um, I guess basque serving man who um, or, or servant of some capacity or or protector or something and um he thinks don quixote is messing around and doesn't like him don quixote gets into this altercation with the basque they get into a fight and right in the middle of the fight with the basque uh the narrative breaks off
1: yeah it's as don quixote is raising his sword above his head for a cleaving blow and it's the end of the chapter the narrator breaks off
0: yeah yeah and so the next chapter says well that's the end of the story <laughs> um, so the the we were talking about this last time but the the whole meta narrative joke is that well that's all we have of don quixote but this narrator cl- this is where it gets really really convoluted and trying to pick out the strands is really messy and it gets even messier in the second book but the narrator claims That he is not the author. The author is someone else. Uh, The author of the book is some unknown writer, and he accidentally found the book written in Arabic in a stall in the city. So he finds the book, grabs it because he recognizes the name Don Quixote, and uh, has somebody else translate it. So you've got the author the translator and the narrator and the narrator claims to be someone other than the author and the translator. So you have these three strands of narrative that are kind of working against each other. Yeah. So even the narrator is this weird self-conscious entity who both is and is not written. So if he's not, okay, who translated and who did what and where does the narrator stand in terms of the translation? That's sort of what I'm asking here. Uh, this makes no sense. So you have a narrator claiming not to be the translated text that it
1: purports to be. Yeah.
0: So it's one more just bizarre joke that Cervantes and, is playing
1: here. And, and and of course and of course the with the narrative itself being the narrative of a man who keeps reciting his own narrative of himself.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it just, it, it gets more convoluted as we go on. Okay. So Don Quixote accidentally beats the Basque because, uh, he, uh, his horse missteps. Um, but he's beaten up by everybody else. Uh, he claims to have a recipe for, a, a balm that will cure him. They meet some goat herds who show him hospitality. Uh, they basically bring him in and say, hey, we don't have much, but kick back, relax, have some nuts and cheese with us. And that's where we get the story of Grisostomo and Marcella. Mm-hmm. Um Marcella was this beautiful girl from the town who (coughs) wanted to live this Arcadian fantasy, so she dressed herself up like a shepherdess and just kind of went out to the woods. Uh, All the boys in town thought she was the most beautiful woman ever, so they dressed themselves up like shepherds and went out to sort of pursue her in this kind of Arcadian style. And uh, this one particular shepherd who was madly in love with her, uh, named uh, Grisostomo, died now you had the best take on this that i thought or at least the funniest take on this that i thought i'd ever heard uh what was your take on grisostomo
1: um oh lord you put me on the spot and i can't i can't remember um what made such an impression on you now um, he was he was friend zoned to death he was the a dead. <laughs> <laughs> man uh, thank you for remembering all the times i'm super clever <laughs> but yeah, yeah no this is this is absolutely like he he uh he yeah, from from the way the story is told, it's this woman. And what's what's I think what's uh, what's excellent about um, the story is that the you know, this woman never led him on. It wasn't like she ever said like, Oh, I'll marry you if you do X, Y, or Z. It was just she was just flat out, No, I'm not interested. Um, you know, and that's <laughs> that's enough yeah. to actually strike the man dead. So uh, it's, you know, according to the way, according to the way the goat herds tell it.
0: Yeah, the way the goat herds tell it, but euphemistically, uh it's suggested that he killed himself. Yeah, and the the goat herds are interested in this because there's going to be a big funeral the next day, uh, because Grusostimo he left in his will how he wanted to be buried, and it wasn't on Christian ground. It was out in the woods. It was according to certain kinds of weird pagan rites. Right, and there's much of that that suggests that this couldn't be a Catholic burial. He he killed himself. Yeah, um, he he wants to be buried with a bunch of his poems they find a bunch of his poems when they wake up the next day they go to his funeral they find a bunch of his poems and read them they're all about how horrible Marcella was to him and then Marcella appears and she appears out of nowhere and says basically leave me alone it's not my fault if I'm beautiful (laughs) and this is one of the, the wonderful things about Don Quixote um Cervantes was living in an extraordinarily misogynistic time. Oh yeah. But his his the women in his novels they're allowed to speak and and they I often know. speak in ways that disrupt a lot of the the kind of Misogynistic expectation. I think
1: I don't want to claim
0: that that Cervantes was a feminist. I mean, there was no feminism at the time, but perhaps some parts of the text could be called proto-feminist or could be seen in that way.
1: Yeah, at at least for nothing else than like having a woman character. And again, we should say this is a man writing in in a woman's voice. But even so, like you know, providing a voice for a woman character to 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 speak for herself against the sort of calumnies being lobbed at her yeah. by these other people and she's, she's saying like look seriously all i ever wanted was to be left alone right that's really i wasn't even trying to exploit anybody i wasn't trying to you know leave anybody on i literally just want everyone to leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> which yeah yeah it, okay we'll talk about that in a little bit but her speech has dignity Mm-hmm. She is allowed dignity and she's allowed dignity in this way that I think really sort of disrupts some of the, the sort of love narratives that, that come up later. Anyway, uh, a bunch of the shepherds or, or, or other you know boys from town who are pretending to be shepherds start to protest and Don Quixote jumps up and says, I will defend her honor and – Mostly because they realize it's going to be a hassle and they feel sort of ashamed. They disperse and leave Marcelo alone. Okay, so Don Quixote uh, goes into the woods. Rosinante smells some mares, gets loose, and Don Quixote is beaten by a bunch of Yagesan cattle drivers. Uh, basically, Rosinante has tried to mount their mares. They're trying to get <laughs> <We're kidding. laughs> Rosinante off. Huh? They beat up Rosinante. Don Quixote comes to Rosinante's rescue and they beat up Don Quixote. Okay. So that's when they uh, Sancho uh, Don Quixote is beaten to the point that he can't really do much anymore, and Sancho takes him to an inn uh, that Don Quixote, of course, mistakes for a castle. Uh, of course, <laughs> there's the innkeeper, the wife, the daughter, and Meritornes, who's the servant in the inn, and she's a, a one-eyed, physically disabled prostitute. Okay, so Meritornes makes arrangements with a mule driver. Don Quixote uh, mistakes her for Dulcinea in the middle of the night. Um, there's a fight in the dark because all of this uh, prostitution assignation is taking place in the dark. In the dark, <clears throat> basically Maritores, uh thinks she's trying to find her mule driver that she's trying to have sex with. Yeah. Don Quixote... Trips her up by accident and says, "Oh, this must be Dulcinea," and sort of projects onto her this kind of you know romantic ideal, and thinks Dulcinea is coming for him. Um, Don Quixote gets in a fight with the mule driver and with Maritornes, and in the middle of this, the Holy Brotherhood shows up. Okay, the Holy Brotherhood was kind of like the they were sort of like the Feds, more or less. Yeah, but the Feds as put together uh, through the Catholic Church so they're sort of like a, a, a federal agency more or less because they have as Spain opened up more and more roads the the crown was concerned about crime on the roads between jurisdictions. so the Holy Brotherhood was this kind of like Catholic office that would police that.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a uh, yeah. It, it was like a a, a Catholic Church's in-house uh, anti-highwayman police yeah. force.
0: Yeah, so they were the ones you didn't want to mess with. And yeah. So a member of the Holy Brotherhood shows up, and everyone shuts up because they don't want to get you know taken to the gallows, uh, except for Don Quixote and the Holy Brother. The member of the Holy Brotherhood beats up Don Quixote, uh, smashes a lantern over his head. And that's when Don Quixote decides it's time to make the balm that he's been um, convinced he can make. So he gets whatever ingredients together that he can, uh, boils them in a pot, uh, drinks them. Sancho drinks the dregs, and Don Quixote vomits all over himself, and Sancho shits himself. And uh, Don Quixote vomits and goes to sleep, and Sancho stays up all night with diarrhea. Okay, so they leave without paying because Don Quixote considered that as a knight errant, he should be able to stay in whatever castle uh, was open to him. And Sancho is caught by a bunch of mule drivers and tossed in a blanket. Okay, so... (laughs) Don Quixote charges at a bunch of sheep that he thinks is an army and then gets mauled by the sheep and the shepherds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a funeral at night. Uh, it looks like a bunch of ghosts carrying torches. It turns out it's a bunch of priests carrying torches and a funeral procession that's going to the next town. Uh, Don Quixote attacks that. And then... Um, Gets beat up. He has a bunch of rocks thrown at him through slingshots. They knock yeah. out a bunch of his teeth, and that's how he becomes the Knight of the Sorrowful Face. <laughs>
1: yes, I always like. I always like that bit that that was. Yeah. He gets his, and he's, the thing is, he's, he's sort of pleased with that. You know that uh, epithet. Yeah. It, it does. It does sound very chivalric, but then, you know, Sancho explains like, "Oh no, this just with all your teeth out, your face groups. You
0: yeah. <laughs> so. so. Um, Sancho gives him that name, and he's content enough with it. Uh, they go to the woods and hear a terrible noise. Don Quixote wants to attack whatever it is, and Sancho is scared, and in the dark, he hobbles Rosinante so Reino- Rosinante won't move, and that's where he shits himself again. Okay, um... <laughs> <clears throat> There's the tale of the goats in the boat. Sancho tries to tell this bizarre tale of of this man who has to transport... Goats in a boat from one side of the river to another, and Don Quixote is supposed to remember how many goats have gone across, and Don Quixote can't remember, and Sancho loses count, so the story is over. So it's another <laughs> it's another tale in the I mean we'll come back to it, but it's another narrative in this story about narratives. It's another version of a narrative, and it's a narrative that goes nowhere.
1: Okay. And, and, I, and honestly, I, I feel like when I uh I feel like when I first read that, I thought to myself, like I I, I guess I first interpreted it as like, okay, is this Sancho trying to cleverly get Don Quixote to just go to sleep instead of (laughs) checking out these these noises to, by getting him to count goats or yeah. something but I kind of real, I don't think Sancho is that clever I don't no. think, I don't think no, he would attempt not. such a ruse yeah no.
0: at least not in the first book in the second book he shows some brains but in the first yeah, book yeah. Not so, much. Um, so in the morning uh, they, they finally see the light literally and they realize that the noise that had been scaring them was uh, a mill it was more uh, they're fulling hammers but it's basically mm-hmm. like this mill powered by the water to pound down um wheat or or grain. Yeah. Uh Sancho laughs, Don Quixote gets upset, um and and tells Sancho, let's let's never tell anyone of this ever again. Don Quixote beats up a barber, steals the basin uh, that the barber was wearing on his head, uh, claims it's the helmet of Mambrino. And if you can't tell it's the helmet of Mambrino, then it's just because the helmet has been enchanted, and we just need to to disenchant it. And as soon as we do that, then everybody will see this is the most fantastic helmet you've ever seen in your world. They quote-unquote rescue a bunch of men headed for the galley. Um, (laughs) They find a bunch of prisoners who claim that they're being unjustly uh, taken to the galleys to be put to work as slaves for uh, the king they leave out the fact that they're prisoners and Don Quixote immediately takes their side uh, that's where we meet Jinez de Pasamonte, who will show up again several times in the second book. Uh, Ginez de Pasamonte is an actual Picaro who is writing his memoirs, sort of like the innkeeper, uh, yeah, or yeah. The, that first innkeeper. He's writing his memoirs, but, uh, he hasn't finished them and Don Quixote wonders why he hasn't finished them and he's, well, he's not dead yet. So he has to keep writing them. Keep that in mind because we'll come back to that later. Um, so they they beat up a bunch of the Holy Order kind of by accident, and the prisoners get away. The prisoners see Don Quixote, and uh, Don Quixote tells them to go back to La Mancha to tell Dulcinea of all the wonderful things that he's done. And they get tired of uh, Don Quixote and beat him up a little bit.
1: <laughs> okay, oh I, I really I really have to say I really do enjoy just how regularly Don Quixote just sort of gets you know gets a few haymakers, gets kicked, just yeah. kind of. He gets abused quite a bit, and yeah. he dishes it out too. Though I mean, he's you know,
0: yeah. It's it's weird. we can talk about that in 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 a second because I yeah, yeah. there's there's something about the tone of that that that's really kind of. Weird. Okay. So Sancho drags Don Quixote to the Sierra Morena Mountains. Uh, Sancho is convinced they're going to be nabbed by the Holy Brotherhood. Now they've really done something that could get them in some trouble. And so he, Sancho wants to lay low for a while. And Don Quixote um, – well, okay. They find a the satchel. This is where the narrative sort of kicks into high gear. They find a satchel uh, with a note – uh, And they find a goat herd who tells them of a ragged man who's lucid at some interval, intervals and then at other times is insanely violent. Okay. They meet this ragged man and they hear half of his story. Okay. So this is one of the narratives within the narrative. And we were talking about this last time. The difference between this – and other kinds of Renaissance tales mm-hmm. is that this takes place – this is a kind of typical Renaissance tale, but it takes place within within the narrative frame. There's no clear distinction between the narrative frame and the tale because Don Quixote interacts with the teller and ultimately interacts with the tale. Mm-hmm. So that blurring of the lines, that blurring of the frame is sort of what makes this closer to a novel – and not so much like a collection of Renaissance tales like Boccaccio's Decameron. Yeah, Okay. Yeah. So the Ragged Man is named Cardenio. Cardenio loves Lucinda, and he becomes part of the court for the Duke. Ricardo befriends—sorry, part of the court for the Duke. He's supposed to be there to sort of serve or, or be a cleric for Ricardo, the older son, and he befriends the younger son, uh, Fernando. Okay, Fernando is in love with a local peasant girl and then suddenly wants to go to Cardenio's homeland. Uh, Fernando starts getting interested in Lucinda, and that's when Don Quixote interrupts uh, with some kind of pedantic note about the chivalric order. He gets in a fight with Cardenio. Cardenio beats him up and runs off. Okay. Yeah. So, Don Quixote decides that what he has to do in order to show Dulcinea, who doesn't exist, uh, exactly, um, <laughs> how crazy in love he is, is to play the part of the crazy lover. So, he's going to stay in the Sierra Morena and um, basically lose his mind, and he needs Sancho to witness some of this so that Sancho can – Take a note to Dulcinea and say, look, um, Don Quixote's love for you is so intense that he has lost his mind. And he's basically modeling himself after um, you know, the old Chivalric romances. And to a degree, modeling himself after Cardinio, who apparently mm-hmm. has had some kind of uh, romantic thwarting to the point that he is no longer sane. Yeah. Okay. So Sancho says he'll, um, he'll take whatever note Don Quixote wants back to Dulcinea. Uh, and he also has a letter for a bunch of mules that Don Quixote tells his niece to give to Sancho. So that's the kind of goad to get Sancho going. And on the way back, Sancho meets the priest and the barber at the inn where he and Don Quixote had, um, Previously stayed a a couple nights before. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end, the priest and the barber are looking for Don Quixote because they realize that he got loose and they're trying to track him down. Um, And they come up with this plan. The priest will disguise himself as an afflicted maiden and the barber will, uh, dress up with a fake beard and pretend to be her servant. And they'll tell Don Quixote that, uh, she's in trouble and he needs to help kill a giant. Okay. Yeah. So, um, they enter the Sierra Moreno and they meet Cardenio. Um, they hear the rest of Cardenio's story. Essentially, Fernando got him out of the way, convinced Lucinda's parents uh, that marrying Fernando would be in their best interest. Cardenio snuck back, and uh, Lucinda planned to kill herself. Cardenio was going to kill Fernando, but he sees Lucinda actually say yes at the marriage – uh, she faints, and Cardinio leaves in a fit of anger. He runs to the Sierra Morena, and that's how he's lost his mind. No. Okay, so the priest, the barber, Cardinio, and Sancho head further into the Sierra Morena, and that's where they find a beautiful woman disguised as a shepherdess. <clears throat> okay, this is Dorotea, who had been seduced by Fernando way back when when uh, (laughs) Cardenio was hanging in the town at the court. Uh, Dorotea was the peasant girl that Fernando was into. She's a rich man's daughter with a very good head for business, and she was very, very skeptical of Fernando, but uh, he played on her sympathy, and so did her uh, lady-in-waiting, and they both convinced her that Fernando would be a good match, and they had this kind of Okay, saying or pledging by God that you would marry someone in 17th century Spain counted for the wedding, at least often in the eyes of the participants. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, Fernando proclaimed his love and proclaimed his desire in front of God with Dorotea as the only witness, uh, had his way with her, and then split. Yeah. So, she disguised herself as a boy and fled into the woods. Um, one man tried to rape her. She killed him. She threw him over, a, a, a cliff. Another tried and she fled from him. And so now she's in hiding in the Sierra Morena. So the priest, uh, convinces her to come along. Uh, the priest and the barber basically say, Hey, we can, we can look after you. Here's Cardinia. Um, they introduce him. Uh, they disguise Dorotea as the princess of Mikomikon and use her to meet Don Quixote to request help to defeat a giant. To so And, and the idea is that her kingdom is just over the hill of La Mancha. So we'll have to pass through La Mancha anyway. So let's go back this way. All right. Um,
1: <laughs> right.
0: So they start heading back. Uh, and that's when they meet Andres, the boy whom Don Quixote freed. And like we said, he was headed to Seville, which signals maybe there was something shady about this dude in the first place. Yeah, yeah. They go to the inn. That's where the innkeeper has a novella that they read called The Man Who's Recklessly Curious, uh, written by Miguel de Cervantes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, ma- I was going to say, this is the. Uh, I think this is the second time that Cervantes' this material has appeared... In the uh, in the work because he was uh, was it when the when the priest and the barber were going through Don Quixote's yes. uh, library at, at his home there, there were a, there were a couple of items that were Miguel de Cervantes to which, which the priest is moved to say oh yes this stuff is great this guy's great yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: so they come across this stuff again and we have this narrative within the narrative I mean th- this is kind of the case that I've been making is that all of these narratives get intertwined and it's difficult to, to, to pick <clears throat> to pick them apart. So the man who's recklessly curious <clears throat> is about two dudes, Anselmo and Lotario. Anselmo has married a, a beautiful woman and he doubts her faithfulness, so he keeps trying to set Lotario up with her. Um, Echeverria, the scholar we were talking about last time, points mm-hmm. out that there's like this homoerotic subtext between them that they – they can engage with each other if they have the woman between them in this, oh, this yeah, kind of yeah. romantic triangle um, <clears throat> at first Lotario says uh, he pretends to come on to the woman but then you know won't actually do it and his friend finds out that he's been faking it and forces him to come on to his wife and they begin an affair that all ends in tragedy and That goes on for nearly 100 pages. Uh, So we have this novella (laughs) within the novel, and so it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, you know, one more tale. But it's a tale that that reflects on all of these romantic tales that have been told so far. And I'll talk a little bit later. I've got some ideas about the the sort of narrative function later. Okay, so Don Quixote is in bed at this point. Then he wakes up and attacks a bunch of wineskins. Uh, Fernando shows up with Lucinda and the whole gang works to get the, the couples right. Uh, basically the priest, the barber, Lucinda, Cardenio, Fernando, and Dorotea all come together to sort of <clears throat> get the romantic math straight. Yeah. And Cardenio ends up with, with Lucinda. Fernando goes back to Dorotea. And all seems well. So, that's when we have the story of the captive. Uh, this Muslim woman walks in, or a woman dressed in in Muslim or Arab garb, and she walks in with this man who looks really, really sunburnt. And that's the story of the captive and Zoraida. So, this is mm-hmm. basically... Uh, uh, an autobiographical tale that, that Cervantes worked in here. The captive is this guy who had gone, uh, he was one of three brothers whose father split their inheritance in three and said, go whichever way you want. Uh, one becomes a priest, one becomes a judge. Uh, the third, the captive goes to, to joins the army and becomes a soldier. He's, uh, he fights in the Navy and then is captured uh, captured by pirates, sold into slavery in, I believe it's Morocco, mm-hmm. and then um, is helped out by this woman whose father is extraordinarily wealthy, who had a Christian servant who turned her to Christianity, and now she wants to get out of Muslim lands to get to, uh, well, a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole adventure story about them breaking out and finally getting to Spain and finally ending up in this inn, and they're trying to get back to the soldier's, um, I guess, place of birth or his origin. So in the middle of that, a judge shows up who's on his way to the New World with his daughter, and the, the judge turns out to be the captive's brother. There's a reunion scene. And then uh, there's this boy, Mule Driver, who's following the judge's daughter, who turns out to be uh, uh, a member of the nobility who is a neighbor of theirs who's in love with her. And his father's got a bunch of men looking for him. And then this whole fight at the inn occurs. Um, the The sort of our gang on one side, the other men on the other side, Don Quixote yeah. caught in the middle. Uh, the Holy Brotherhood arrives – uh, the whole thing is broken up, and um, everyone is sort of convinced to leave Don Quixote alone because at this point Don Quixote really is in trouble for having freed the 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 galley slaves. Yeah. But everyone, including the judge, sort of works on the Holy Brotherhood to say just just let this guy go. He's <laughs> crazy. <says>, Don't worry about <laughs> right. him. It's, let him go.
1: There's there's nothing there's nothing to gain by trying to yeah it's, it's it's really just like well i think that's what you know so many people because the conclusion they come to is like just let this guy be be nuts like there's yeah. nothing we can do about this D- trying to stop it isn't going to help anything you know or, or at least you know trying to stop it directly by manhandling it isn't going to help anything yeah uh. here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact
0: So, all right, the barber arrives that, you know, the one who was in possession of Mambrino's helmet, he says, I want my helmet back. Well, or or I want my basin back. And by this point, it's been more or less demolished. The priest and the barber pay him off, so all's good. Um, They figure that now's their chance. Uh, They, while Don Quixote falls asleep, they build this kind of cage for him in a wagon. Um, and they convince him that he's been enchanted by some wizard and he can't get out of the cage. And he says, well, if it's a wizard's enchantment, even though these bars look like, I mean, this is just wood. I could knock this over, but yeah, yeah, it checks out. So enchantment, I guess I got to stay here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Them's Um, Them's the rules, huh? You know?
0: So basically, uh, the judge's daughter is now in love with the boy and that, romantic math works out, a bunch of the lovers have to pass back through La Mancha in order to get to where they're going. So the whole thing is like this caravan back to La Mancha with Don Quixote in the back, so-called enchanted by wizards, even though (laughs) he can easily open the bars and get out and pee when he needs to. Okay. So on the way back, they meet a cannon... Uh, who gives a long speech on art. He gives this long discourse on art and aesthetics, and they have this picnic, and that's when they meet a goat herd who tells the story of um, the most beautiful girl in his town who was seduced and abandoned by a fake soldier, and he was in love with her, everyone else was in love with her, and he's punishing uh, all of femininity by... um, Talking to his female goat and shaming it for all of its licentious ways. Yeah. Don Quixote gets into a fight with him, and the canon laughs at the stupidity of both and says, Hey, just look at these two idiots. Let them fight it out. They'll get tired after a while. Ha 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 ha. Then they go back to La Mancha at the end. <laughs> and that's. <laughs> sort of what I find so fascinating is is it, it ends just as abruptly as it began it's just yeah, sort of yeah they go back Don Quixote says okay I'm not gonna do this anymore at the end and of course he does do it again because there's a sequel but it's just this kind of begin and end it's
1: up it's down done
0: right you know?
1: which is especially interesting considering how much care was given to tying up all the loose ends of all these ancillary characters we meet along the way. I mean, uh, al- almost to an absurd degree. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, like
0: er- everything has to come back, you know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it, it's really pretty silly, and then it just stops. Okay, so I mean, we get some dedicatory verses at the end, uh, and this claim that that the narrator or author or whatever this being is. Has seen the grave of Don Quixote or seen, um, poems on the grave of Don Quixote. And, and that's it. Okay. So, it's so much fun. It's so weird. It, it took an hour to get that out. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like in, in, in recounting it, uh, or nearly an hour, I don't know how long, but, uh, in recounting it, 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 just reminds me of the real fun of reading the text I
1: mean, yeah yeah and, and, and like we mentioned i guess like we could say i guess this will be part of this will be part of the personal response portion of our of our <laughs> podcast project um and and i it just it's helped along by the fact that it is um it is episodic uh it's a very um and, and we talked about it in kind of the uh what the, the literary forebears episode that we did, um, you know, prior to this one about the, uh, like again, how the, the picaresques would be like that. And some of the other sort of literary forms is drawing on, have that episodic quality. And, but that really does, that really does sort of help it go at a clip. Um, to the extent that, you know, like any, because there's part one and two, like it's basically two, it's, it's all published as parts one and two together anymore. So you, so it looks like this doorstopper
0: right. when
1: you, when you pick it up off the shelf. Um, But it it reads so fluently. Um, And it's just, uh, you know, it's one thing after another. It's madcap. Um, And even with these sort of odd digressions into, uh, you know, it, it becomes an anthology of tales almost. Yeah. kind of it's similar to the Decameron, or or really like I, I, I almost thought like sort of a, uh, an, a an ass backwards Canterbury Tales, in that <laughs> in that it, but but in a re, real way because we have like this this setup where a bunch of people end up telling each other tales and then get together and form a caravan that goes to their destination, right, and um, then stop and then stop <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah but it, but it is yeah it's it's uh it's a delight to read yeah
0: I, I i hadn't really thought about that connection to the canterbury tales but i i, I think you're right that 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 caravan aspect to it really drives it towards you. yeah all right so there's a bunch of analytical stuff i i thought way too much about this because i have a very long train ride um but the, there are a couple of things that that are really worth digging into and and thinking about. And part of this is, is inspired by uh, some of the scholarship that we were talking about last time. And, and part of it is, is also just other weird observations. But the, the first thing that's really fun about this is how much of it draws from the idea of um, self invention, that's really at the heart of this Don Quixote Invents an identity
1: for himself You know mm-hmm. um, he's well, he, not, he, That's he not invents, even his name He invents an identity for himself And he invents identities for everyone around him While he's yeah. at it yeah.
0: and, and whoever he doesn't Sort of Whoever he doesn't misread He draws into his adventures And makes them a part Of This fantasy that he has well okay we'll get into it in part two it may not be a fantasy but he draws everyone else into what he's doing so he reinvents himself in the image of the his idea of the best possible him that he could be and he uses literature to do it. But this is a running theme throughout the whole novel. He's not the only one drawing an identity from literature. He's not the only one modeling himself after past stories. Nearly everybody else is. Okay, so um, you have Marcella and Grisostomo who are modeling themselves after Arcadian shepherds. Um Marcella to one degree, Grisostomo to another degree. But they're both sort of leaving behind uh, their past lives to become their so-called ideal. Yeah. And Echevarria has this, this read on this where he says, you know, this would have been fishy in, in the 17th century, because the expectation would be that Marcelo and Grisostomo, well, they're both rich kids. They're both from, you know, minor aristocratic families. What this should be is, um, joining houses. Like, it, there yeah. should be a, a coupling where, uh, they're continuing the line and continuing the order. But it's not. It's like the erotics of it actually get in the way. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but they're another example of someone. Okay, we're going to give up. This is this is straight from the pastoral. We're going to give up this cruddy old city life uh-huh. and go live in the country where it's easy, and that leads to tragedy. Okay, so that's one. Um, Set of characters that really sort of draw from literature. But, uh, everyone else is very familiar with chivalric tales. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, the niece and the housekeeper can really just jump in and pick up on the the need to continue the tale and can improvise, showing that they know how these things run. The priest and the barber also show that ability to improvise. They develop their own chivalric tale in order to try to trap Don Quixote within it. Um, they know these stories, and they begin to model their own behavior, you know, Mockingly, I guess, or or I guess yeah. Cervantes is 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 mocking their attempts to do so. It's not in the same registers on Quixote, but they also are modeling their behavior after Chivalric Tales. It even gets to something like um okay, you've got the Picaros that I keep pointing pointing out. They're self-consciously Picaros. Um, the, yeah. the innkeeper is a Picaro and, and he knows the genre that he's writing in and supposed to be living in. Inez de Passamonte also knows the genre that he's writing in and supposed to be living in. So they're conforming to certain kinds of literary rules. Don, Don Fernando is adopting the attitude of the, the Don Juan the Don Juan character, mm-hmm. um, that's sort of the role he's playing out and it's extraordinarily easy to get him to drop it. So is that just some kind of identity he had for himself or is that you know, like, is that a role that he's playing? Uh, that, that seems to be sort of the lingering question there and Cardinio and Lucinda, there's this really interesting moment. Um, They seem to be a perfect match, even according to their parents. Yeah. Um, this is this is when Cardinio is telling his story. He says, Our parents, with all the simplicity, uh, our parents knew of our intentions and were not troubled by them because they saw clearly that in time, these intentions could have no other end but our marriage, something that was practically guaranteed by the equality of our families and our fortunes. We matured, as did our love, until it seemed to Lucinda's father that, in deference to public opinion, he was obliged to deny me entrance to his house, almost imitating in this regard the parents of that same Thisbe, praised so often by poets um the, the parents have to model their behavior after pyramus and Thisbe, or, or, or after the myth <laughs> of pyramus and Thisbe, yeah. because they have to put up a show of well we can't let this guy have it too easy but um they're ready willing and able to just let the kids be together and if they had just let the kids be together wouldn't things have been a lot better? <laughs> okay, so anyway, everybody is yeah. modeling themselves off of some kind of literary forebear. I mean, it, it, it just, like, as soon as you start looking for it, you can't not see it. Yeah. So the whole thing is infused with um, the, this kind of literary awareness. Okay, so, <coughs> excuse me. So I want to come back to Marcello and Grisostomo because that th- there are two moments in the book that I think, or, or at least in the first book, that are really kind of dark. Uh, the first is Marcella and Grisostomo, and yeah. that one is is really kind of grim. Uh, it, it ends in a really sad way. Marcella, I, I would argue that she's allowed to keep her dignity. Um... But there's something else that I think is lurking back there. And this is another thing that Echeveria writes about, and he actually did a whole book about. And that is the book that I was talking about last time. I sort of ended our discussion with this uh, pseudo-novel, or, or tragicomedy, or I'm not quite sure what it is, uh, Celestina. La Celestina was this weird work... It's almost like a novel with no narration, or it's a play that could not be performed. Um, It was written by this guy named Fernando de Rojas. Uh, Rojas was from a family of conversos, and in fact, his uh, Jewish conversos. And his uncle, I believe, was caught by the Inquisition... Uh, for some offhand comment he'd made two years earlier in a tavern, and then tortured because he wouldn't confess because he couldn't even remember what he was supposed to confess to. Yeah. Uh, I'm bringing this up to to sort of have us keep in mind that you know I, I think in our side conversations that we were having before um, you know over the past month we we're talking about the Reconquista and the Inquisition as mm-hmm. this uh, moment of essentially ethnic cleansing.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's it's what's what's very interesting about it is that it didn't begin as ethnic cleansing, but rather this it's a cleansing that took on an ethnic component. Yeah, um, because to you have to remember that this all goes back to the uh, the kind of extreme uh, Catholic nationalism of the uh, you know the, the conquering kingdoms led by chiefly by Castile, which uh, could be argued that was actually an imported. Uh, ideology that was uh, imported by the the crusading movement which was began in northern france Uh, but you know i I think we've actually talked a little bit about that but you know it's it's not just a native spanish thing it's almost like a a pan-catholic project that became most concentrated and virulent in spain um but what was what kind of came of it is that you know the so political power in the peninsula by this point, you know, completely expunged any Muslim political power. Um, basically, they're converting people by the sword all over the place. You can uh, you can either convert to Christianity or you can leave or you can get killed. Um, and so there's these mass expulsions, uh, which at this point are, um, you know, to the, to the extent that you can draw a distinction between you know an ethnos and a religion at this point, which is itself kind of dodgy. Um, there's, they're religiously motivated. Like, you know, the, the Spanish authorities, or I should say, the Catholic Spanish authorities, are like, look, as long as you convert, whatever. But the problem becomes, you know, you have these people in your in your state in your body politic that are uh, that that are you don't quite trust. that They're all the way there. There's still some kind of otherness to them. There's there's an, there's there's an otherhood that rankles. And so the you get what's you know the Spanish Inquisition enters this phase where they're not just they're basically on the lookout not just for like heresy but heresy of the blood yeah. they're going after they're trying to dig up and because you know once you adopt for you know for for most people like you when you adopt a new religion you tend to adopt a new name in keeping with that religious tradition so you had all these Jewish families these uh, you know formerly Jewish families formerly Muslim families uh, so the conversos and the moriscos and so now. Instead of just you know they thought they were safe they thought they were assimilated um, because of the fear of crypto Judaism the fear of crypto Islam the fear that the inborn corruption in the blood of these yeah. people would destroy the great Catholic nation there this it becomes an ethnic cleansing it becomes yeah. where they're not just expelling anyone who refuses to assimilate they're expelling anyone who wasn't quote unquote you know really spanish which is of course preposterous uh but it's uh it's an extremely ugly uh process and extremely and and of course because you have these people who can again we're gonna i I hate i mean i don't know if using words like pass is the right way to do it but a lot of these families could pass as good catholic christian spaniards because they were and because you know everyone looks the same like it's not like you're gonna be able to like actually like look at somebody um but if you have enough you know if there's enough knowledge of the family history in the village your neighbor can inform on you right you know your it, your local headman can inform on you and it's it's just a very very ugly time
0: and i mean <clears throat> that's that's i don't want to get too far down this because it seems too pat but mm-hmm. i i am very curious about whether this obsession with self-invention and self-reinvention has something to do, like in the novel, has oh, something yeah. to do with this idea of conversion. That, well, I think that, it, I think
1: it um, I think it has to be d- it's deeply involved because it became well. I, I mean, just think about it: reinvention or coming up with a new story about yourself and your family became a matter of survival. Yeah, you you, you were to you had to reinvent, you had to create or or piece together or somehow make a convincing argument. That you have this family story, this family narrative that does not include these people, you know, in the woodpile. <laughs> <Right. laughs> these, these these people who had been there for literally centuries and who were every bit as part of the 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 landscape and the, the, the people there as anyone else. Um, but you had to reinvent. You had to. Not only did you have to reinvent, but you had to reinvent according to. Uh, uh, you, you had to reinvent according to an ideal. Right, uh, and I think that that comes through very strongly. Of course, I mean that's the whole story of Don Quixote, isn't it? He's reinventing himself and envision, sort of envisioning himself in the light of this Catholic Spanish ideal. And you had many hundreds of thousands of people attempting to do that, just so they didn't get you know put to the torch.
0: Well, that's the weird part of Celestina. So Rojas wrote this book called La Celestina, mm-hmm. and it's it's about this uh, young nobleman who's in love with this girl who's his neighbor. Um, He doesn't want to get the girl. He wants to play the part of the amorous lover. And he's got the servant. The, The servant points out to him, like on the second page, well, Just go tell your dad to tell her dad to hook you guys up. You're rich. You're an aristocrat. She's rich. She's an aristocrat. It would be a perfect match. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that that's not what the courtly lover does. Mm -hmm. So he has to go through this whole rigmarole of working with this local bod named Celestina in order to get the girl. And she's this character who's maybe kind of a witch. She uh, specializes in love potions and sewing up hymens to uh, simulate virginity. And she works behind the scenes with all of her nefarious tricks in order to try to get the two kids together. And this starts out comedic and ends tragic because the kid falls off a wall breaks his neck and dies uh the girl sees it kills herself the servants uh figure out what Celestina was up to and kill her and Mm -hmm. so it all sort of goes south it's it's a self-reinvention in a play acting that ends in tragedy and the reason I wanted to bring it up is because there's so much of like just the outlines of that story itself that sounds like Marcel and Grisostomo mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah absolutely the 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 reinvention ends in tragedy but Don Quixote really has to work to throw that off there's something about that one episode that really struck like still strikes me throughout yeah. the whole book that it, it, it it's allowed a woman is allowed dignity uh-huh. and that goes in the face of a lot of the misogyny of the culture at the time. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really profound moment in the text. It really stands out. And the, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, I think what also kind of stands out about it is that not only, not only does Marcella have a voice to kind of, uh, uh, she uses her voice to push back against the idea that this is tragedy in the in the sort of technical sense. Yes, or at least it's it's just like look, yeah, this guy was an idiot, and I, you know, th- yeah, this is bad, but it's not like cosmically horrible. It's not it's not this kind of like. Uh, you know, the, 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 I guess the hubris at work. If we can uh, use the Aristotelian <clears throat> definition of tragic, uh, which I'm sure we all shall, um, you know, this, this kind of hubris at work. I guess and, you know she's pushing back on this idea that, like, I don't know. It feels like she's pushing back on the idea that we should be especially upset that he died because he was so in love with her.
0: Right, and she's like, this has nothing to do with me. I right, mean, right. It, it, this is this is above and beyond. I mean. This is rape culture. This mm-hmm. is a culture where it, it struck me reading this one th- this this time through how how often rape comes up. Yeah, because it's always lurking in the sidelines for every female character.
1: Yeah, it, it really, is. really is. And just to sort of speak to like the sort of the culture, the, the culture aspect of it, I, I, you know, it's it's very interesting to me, or I think very, it's very telling that, um, you know, every, every woman is basically assumed to be responsible for the actions of the men around her. Yeah, and yeah. not only not only the actual actions of the men around her, she's held responsible for the inner state of this yeah. man that's exactly right what you know and what the hell are you supposed to do about that <laughs> you know like yeah, my I mean, god
0: yeah and and th- that i think is why the marcella episode really sticks out because it it is directly speaking back against all of that mm-hmm. all right and there's something else that i think it's doing and and this is where I, you know i've got this kind of idea uh, about don quixote there, there's this kind of Freudian thing going on here and this is where we can talk about sex and desire and Don Quixote um, I, I, there's this way in which Don Quixote has set himself up to never not be questing mm-hmm. like what what he did was elevated this peasant woman to the status of his lady love, but according to the chivalric courtly ideal, you're not supposed to get the girl. The girl is supposed to be so far beyond you, and the point of the quest is to prove your love and prove your heroism to the woman, and she will never accept that heroism. It's never enough, so right. you keep doing more, and you keep doing more, and you keep doing
1: more. It sets up this kind of uh, well, what's the what's the math term? Asymptotic relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, it it's a kind of of masochism. I was thinking about this because. I'm teaching a summer class, and we were doing uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And there's Uh a character in Midsummer Night's Dream. It's Helena, if you ever read it. And she's in love with this guy who doesn't love her or who used to love her and fell out of love and now is in love with this other girl. And so Helena, I mean, tells him literally, treat me like your dog. I I just want to be around you. Abuse me. Hurt me. And Helena goes to the point of – telling uh this guy that she's in love with that the girl he's in love with has fled into the woods with her lover to try to go one town over to elope and so it's this whole sort of i mean it's if we're doing our simpsons references it's millhouse thinking to himself you know when when lisa sees that i'll give a note to her, uh, the guy she has a crush on, then she's bound to fall in love with me because then she'll realize I'll do anything, right? Yeah. Um, it's this kind of uh, masochistic desire that, that is going on in there. And there's something I think kind of masochistic about Don Quixote, except um, he's doing something a little bit different. Now, he more or less invented his chivalric ideal. He more or less invented Dulcinea. So his erotic fantasy is a woman who will never completely have him so that he'll have to keep questing in order to please her and she'll never be pleased. Yeah, Don Quixote has invented for himself uh, a way never to stop playing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. right it's, it's 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 setting up this kind of endless uh it's the endless treadmill right it's the uh, well it's like those uh those you know those smartphone games endless runner smartphone yeah. games where you just keep going and going and going you know and the whole point is just go as long as you can you know it's uh but right he, he set it up for himself not only from the standpoint of I mean that's kind of baked in anyway to the idea of the you know courtly love and dedicating yourself to this woman you can never have blah 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 blah. But you know he takes it even a step further and dedicating himself to an imaginary woman he can <laughs> <Yes>. never have. <laughs> so he's fulfilled
0: by not being fulfilled, right? So it's it's this weird way where he's kind
1: of self satisfied. Well, he's he's, he's uh, it's a kind of masturbatory Sisyphean uh, ordeal. He set up for himself <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: But that's what allows him to develop a singular identity. And, and I want to bring this back to Marcella. She also has done the same thing. She is is sort of self-fulfilled in adopting the identity of a shepherdess being a shepherdess. Mm-hmm. It's it's antisocial in the same way that, that Don Quixote's uh, ideal is sort of antisocial, i.e., it's completely his own fantasy and no amount of dragging him back to town is ever really going to break him from it uh-huh. because it's a fantasy so, I guess, self-fulfilling in its non-fulfillment that it can't – it can't ever be fulfilled. It can't ever stop. There's something I think kind of similar in Marcella. She's a, a sort of parallel to Don Quixote in this way. Uh-huh. Um that that I think is what gives her, her power, and I think she really does have power in this text. But that's sort of like the, the weird kind of fulfillment and non-fulfillment that that I think drives Don Quixote.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right to draw that uh, that kind of parallel. That kind of um, yeah. There's that there's, there's self-conscious. It's not even quite image image making. Is not. Quite fair to say, but it is self—it is self-construction with an image as this kind of uh, lodestar, I guess, this kind of yeah. uh, guiding light. Yeah.
0: So the the third thing that that really sort of struck me this time around um, has to do with cruelty and violence, and I was talking about this a little bit when when we were talking about the canon, mm-hmm. um, cruelty. Is really going to play a part in the second book of Don Quixote. Uh, one of the main, I guess, episodes in the second book is when Don Quixote goes to the house of these aristocrats who've read the first book of Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we know this guy. Let's mess with him. And they right, right. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we know.
1: Yeah, we know this. Oh, this is that crazy guy we read about, honey. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and so they spend several chapters just humiliating him. And it really piles on the cruelty. And in the middle of all this humiliation, Don Quixote begins to get more and more, um, I guess, more and more generous. He he gets more and more verbose. He becomes more and more eloquent. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're really made to feel for him. Uh, what it does is puts... Uh, it puts an audience there or it it makes us aware of ourselves as an audience Mm -hmm. in much of book one, we're laughing at him because we're not watching others laugh at him. But when we see others laugh at him, we're made aware of the cruelty in, in the violence. Yeah. Yeah. Except when the cannon comes in. (laughs) It's when the canon comes in. I, I'm sorry, not except. It's when the canon comes in that there's a shift in how we have to understand the violence because the canon is an authority figure and the canon basically says, hey, look at these idiots. And suddenly we're watching someone watch Don Quixote. Right. Yeah. He's a kind of audience stand in and there's something extraordinarily mean. And mean spirited about that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it, it strikes me that Cervantes tends to do this when an authority shows up. That, yeah. that's kind of my, my, my thesis here because it, it's the aristocrats in the second book and it's the canon in this book. The canon is the only real authority. Uh, Aside from the Holy Brotherhood Right There's kind of
1: Yeah there's kind of the uh, Just vague They're they're, they're the vague uh, You know Jackboot Of the whole Shebang You know (laughs) Rather than any kind of Specific uh, Personage
0: yeah, the priest is just a local do-gooder who doesn't really have much power. The barber is the barber. Um, the other aristocrats are sort of involved in their love story or involved in their love tale to the degree that they're – well, they're just overly involved in their own affairs. Yeah. Um, the canon is the one person that I find in the first book – has real power mm-hmm. but what does he do with that power he exercises it in this really cruel way earlier yeah. uh when there had been a fight you know the judge the the um the priest the barber fernando uh Cardinio, everybody worked to sort of cool it like okay it got to a point but we'll cool it down don't worry about don quixote he's fine it's when the canon this figure of church authority and and moral highness comes in that's when we're made aware of the cruelty here
1: yeah yeah it's like i think it's um i i thought it was very interesting that's kind of the first act of authority that we get in the whole text um is the uh the first act of authority is the act of policing Don Quixote's imagination. Yeah, uh, the that's the, the sort of the first you know it's, it's taken upon themselves you know the the priest and the uh, and the barber take it on themselves to go and 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 again I guess it feels sort of uh, you know not the same but it feels like in sort of a similar wheelhouse of how women are expected to be responsible for the for the interior life of the men around them. Uh, This, you know, this fellow took it upon himself to be responsible directly for the interior life of Don Quixote to the extent that he ransacked his house. Yeah. Um, To put police, it was literally thought policing, (laughs) 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 which, you know, if you're going to have, hey, if you're going to have thought police, uh, you know, 17th century Spain is where they're going to be. But, uh, yeah.
0: But, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it just really, really struck me that, that, that 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 cruelty really comes out, mm-hmm. and we end. I mean, like I said, the book just kind of stops. Yeah, and and we just end in this kind of equivocal place. Um, earlier, Don Quixote had, ha- <clears throat> excuse me, had had this long conversation with the canon. Uh, the, the, I, I don't know how to interpret the canon's uh, art critique. Mm-hmm. The the canon gets basically a. I don't know a chapter and a half or two chapters of of literary theory of what makes a good play and what doesn't make a good play of what makes yeah. a good writing what doesn't make good writing. Um, Echevarria was was saying that I mean I think in a throwaway line he he claimed that this is essentially um, Cervantes' point of view so that the the canon represents. Cervantes at least to the degree that he echoes Cervantes ideas about art I'm I'm not sure I I don't have enough context to make a judgment there yeah but it, it does seem very very strange that if the canon represents Cervantes views that the canon is this kind of author of cruelty in a way. And then something something happens. <laughs> Don Quixote interrupts the canon, and they get into this kind of conversation about the veracity of, of chivalric tales. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess we were talking about this a little bit last time, but basically what Don Quixote wants to know is, well, um, who's to say what's true and what's not? If it's written in a book and it was allowed to be published, well... Shouldn't it be true? So, (laughs) you know, and and he's saying, but there were these actual figures, and the canon wants to say, well, some of these were real, some of these weren't. Some of these things could actually happen, some of these things couldn't. And Don Quixote basically says, well, I'm going by the book. It's it's all written down. It's the best I have to do. So, uh, no, it's real and i mean that that really you know with with this book that's so concerned about bookishness that's so concerned about faith in this weird way faith in what we read i mean i can't help but wonder if there's some covert stab there about Believing in miracles, believing in the miraculous, believing in in the supernatural to some degree that huh. you know allows yeah. one to have faith. But I, again, I'm not entirely certain of the context, and I, I don't want to dive in.
1: There. Right, and if uh, you know, we don't necessarily want to want to read back too much. Like it's, I, I I'm, I'm with you though. That's that's a, it's that's tantalizing. it's tantalizing. That's it's man. It's one of those. <laughs> it's it's one of those things that has just enough supporting evidence to really seriously entertain the idea. Yet you can't quite seal the deal that. Uh, well, I mean that makes for good uh, what good journal writing, right? <laughs> that's a good journal <laughs> article. <laughs> that's, well, I mean, I, that's called starting a, an academic conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess fully. But,
0: but no, I mean that that's what it comes down to is that it, it's it's a ripping at, at least for me it's a ripping read, but it cracks open all of these questions about epistemology about the basis of truth about the mm-hmm. nature of yourself and when i was reading it in this time I, I think we spent so much time with montaigne i can't get montaigne out of my head <laughs> and, and it seems like the thing that everything we've done has in common is this question of the basis of truth mm-hmm. and what do you do when um when either truth is indeterminate or or when you're epistemologically thrown, yeah, you Im- you improvise. I mean, that was right. like the running thing in in Montaigne, and that's absolutely what Don Quixote does.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a kind of um, well, right. I mean, what is what is Don Quixote going through? But like a, an extended, extreme epistemological crisis, <laughs> <laughs> to, <you laughs> to, the, to the extent that he sees uh, giants where there are windmills and whatnot. But uh, but yeah, but this as as you've I think ably pointed out. Um, that kind of uh, self-construction in the face of the, uh, you know, in the face of everything around them, like you know, everybody's partaking of that to some extent in, in, in Don Quixote. It's just that Don Quixote himself is sort of the most extreme manifestation of it.
0: Yeah, and, and in some ways, he almost seems the most honest version. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: we'll get to it when we get to book two. I've already started in on book two. I'm sorry. No, but yeah, yeah. In, in book two, at the very beginning, he he says, "I know who I am. I know what you're trying to do to me. I know what you're trying to say to me. Don't waste your time. I know exactly who I am. <laughs> um, right. He's he's not pretending to be anything other than." a knight errant and everybody else claims to be their real self but they're still drawing so much so from from other sources there's this way in which don quixote is upfront about constructing his identity off of the the media that he's consumed and everyone else like no one else will admit that you know
1: yeah yeah Um, yeah that's i I think you're you're absolutely right like there's the uh and i think i would venture that's why he uh elicits such a strong reaction from everybody (laughs) is he's 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 you know he's he's, uh he's it's can i even use the phrase like he's you know pulling you know uh, pulling the curtain back so we can see because you know he's not he's he's to use another cliche, pulling the wool over his own eyes, I guess, but right. well, in well, sort of, but in his sort of clownish attempt at it, uh, I guess he's still, he's, he's he's still again just clownishly doing. Well, I mean, and what is what is the clown? I guess that that is the uh, you know clowning is this kind of exaggerated performance of otherwise normal. Social cues and gestures and whatnot, and that's why everyone's creeped out by them <laughs> and hates well, them. Um, but that's what he's doing, just with this kind of this kind of aspect of uh, of, of self guided performance.
0: Well, I, I, I I'm reminded of. Um i reminded of two things. One, it's probably okay to talk about. The other is a little blue. Um, the one is uh, Jory Graham, uh, the the American poet, did a, a, a whole book called Swarm that is um, it, it's it's an apocalyptic book of poems, mm-hmm. um, it, really exploring what apocalypse means. It means ripping of the veil. And yeah. one of the things Graham keeps playing with is this idea that we know like the things we know we know because they are concealed the veil allows us to give shape to what's underneath and sometimes we can't know or understand what's underneath without the fictive covering to to draw a line from wallace stevens um i okay and this reminds me of an anecdote that maybe I'll have Josh cut because it's a little bit blue <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I I once um I met this guy I interviewed him in, in Boston uh, he was this weird dude uh, he was this older guy I, I think he was like in his 60s maybe a little bit older but um, he he was a painter and also made marionettes mm-hmm. <laughs> he had this fantastic room full of you know bizarre marionettes and he was fascinated by um, uh, I guess 16th, 17th, 18th century methods of construction not just mm-hmm. marionettes but also of uh, paintings and he developed his own um Oh, what are they called? The, the the sort of shadow boxes that they would make—the reflective boxes. Oh, the, that would project the image.
1: The camera obscura.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah. He he developed his own camera obscuras in order to paint in that way to try to warp and do all this. Work. I mean, it, it, it was really fascinating what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. But I got into this long conversation with him, and he was talking about the nature of reality and art. And he said, you know, I I think about it like uh, he said when he was a younger man, he ended up in paris at a bunch of the burlesque houses and got to know the stripper Uh and uh he said so how do you do it man how do you um get out there and get naked and she says i don't get naked uh she says um i be real i conceal Hmm. reality is not the ripping away of the cover it's the fantasy we put over
1: to know the truth
0: is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of what he was talking about, I hope.
1: Well, you know, that's that's, uh, that's fascinating. It reminds me of, uh, did you ever see the, um, oh, I can't remember the, the gentleman's name, but he was an uh, art scholar and he did this, uh, a, a series of... Um, uh, art criticism documentaries for the BBC called Ways of Seeing.
0: Yeah, John Berger.
1: John yeah, Berger. I, thank you so much. Yeah, I, so, know, that, I, I know the book. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a really great book. It's a great book and you should absolutely, it's on YouTube and I, I recommend to every single listener out here, please uh, 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 go to YouTube Look up John Berger ways of seeing the second episode of this. is a four part series. It's four half hour episodes. So you can watch it in an afternoon while you're doing dishes and whatever. Um, well, I hope it doesn't take two hours to do dishes, but you know what I mean? <laughs> That's um,
0: a lot of plates.
1: It's a lot of dishes. Uh, look, I got a lot of bottles to wash, man. Um, but, uh, but anyway, the second episode is as fascinating because it's about uh, the nude in the Western yeah. oil painting tradition. And, 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 and I, th- it's, I think it's an amazing bit of television because it's about an eight or nine minute sort of introductory comments by John Berger. And then he gives the entire rest of the show, the entire rest of the 20 minutes of the show over to a panel of four or five women to, to talk about the nude and talk about sort of the, the, way, the ways in which – because what Berger's thesis is and what sort of uh, develops in the conversation among these women is this idea that there's a difference between being naked – in between being nude, yeah, and there's such an element of performance, and there's an element of knowing you're being observed to the nude that it's just another set of clothes you put on, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah. so I think that's kind of similar to what your your acquaintance was talking about with the the burlesque dancer in in, in Paris. Um, uh, yeah, uh, there, there's like oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah, and to bring it back to, to Don Quixote, Don Quixote knows reality by way of his fantasy. <laughs> Right. And there's this way in which his reality is real because he gets to know it. Someone like, um, someone like Grisostomo dies tragically because, not because he mistakes the fantasy for reality, but because he knows he's playing a part until he doesn't. You know, he, he right, right. deludes himself into thinking that he's in control. And Don Quixote, I don't think does that. And, and then even Cardenio and Lucinda, they don't quite understand that they're taking on certain kinds of roles, you know? Don Quixote does. He actively does, and that allows him to know his reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, man, Don Quixote. <laughs> this book is amazing. I'm really and I'm really looking forward to uh, reading the second part um, because I haven't read it yet. Um, <laughs> That's right. Do you, because well, when we first, you know, we for, the first time I read Don Quixote, when we were first doing this, we did as we did similarly tonight, where we talked about the first part, and then we were going to talk about the second part, and then you know things changed in the in the project. Uh, you know, we it, well it came back in this in this format. But uh, so I'm really, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really thrilled. I've 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 read like excerpts and I've read like synopses. Yeah. Um, but I'm really looking forward to actually reading it for myself because you know the way you have been talking about it, I'm I'm ready to get really mad at these people being mean to my poor Don Quixote. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's it's weird in the second book, and we'll, we'll talk about this. But this is just a heads up for for anyone reading the second book. Um, the characters shift a little bit because the whole conceit of the second book is that they know. The first book was written um, yeah. Don Quixote is made aware That somebody Wrote down his life And so the whole point is To go have more adventures To finish the second book of Don Quixote And um The characters are aware of themselves as characters in this weird way. But Don Quixote and Sancho both become more eloquent and it becomes less about the adventures and more about their conversations. And if possible, it becomes even more dialogic than the first (laughs) book had been. Mm -hmm. So you get these long conversations between Sancho and – and Don Quixote where they basically share a delusion but they talk each other into into believe in whatever it is they need to believe and there's a lot of give and take it's very sweet it, it's very sweet in this way yeah so so did we finish
1: I I, I think so <laughs> well, I mean, as, as much as you can finish with a uh, densely <laughs> self-referential uh, text like uh, Don Quixote man but no oh, so I, I think uh, this is this is a man it's always great having a conversation with you claude knight and i hope uh you listeners out there as always as always if you found any of this at all interesting please go read the book uh read it for yourself have your own have your own reactions um, but of course, if uh, you know, you can you can of course use what you learned today in our conversation we've had today to impress people at parties um, and act like you have read the book because, like we like Claude said, Don Quixote is one of those that's more talked about than read. Um, but no, yeah, that's. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, man.
0: Oh, yeah, but I was going to say please read it because it's, it, it really is a joy to get through. I mean, sometimes Montaigne felt a little bit like a slog, yeah. but this one, you just clip right through it. It's, it's absolutely amazing. So I guess yeah. you can find us on Twitter.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I know. I keep saying I'm going to actually set that up, uh, and uh, th- this time maybe I will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you can't. But you can't find us on Facebook. We do have a, a cool uh, uh, Facebook group, so just search for the Cannonball, yeah. and uh, we'll we'll approve you for that. <clears throat> and
0: um, yeah. yeah, and uh, rate and review on iTunes, I suppose. And we also have the the blog. I'm going to get some more writing up there soon. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's the Cannonball Podcast at. <laughs> uh, Actually, WordPress. That's, that's, yeah, At WordPress. Uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. So yeah. find us there. And uh, yeah, go read Don Quixote. Go,
1: go read, stop go read, your life. That's, that's right. Go stop wasting your life and start reading about someone creating their own at a whole cloth. You're going to love it. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, hope you enjoy. And i uh, will talk to you later, Daniel.
1: All right. Bye. Good night, man.